inshallah, without uh, further ado, uh, ado, I'd like to call upon um, uh, Mufti Abdul Mannan, who is an instructor of eanim.org. Assalamu alaikum wa Alhamdulillah, the Lord has so in the last session, alhamdulillah, you were introduced to the uh, minor signs and uh, you discussed some of them that took place um, years ago and uh, the, the impact it had on the ummah. Uh, inshallah, this session we're going to cover uh, approximately 10 to 11 signs, which are minor signs as well. And uh, one thing that I'm sure you've already heard is that the minor signs, uh, they're considered minor in two aspects. One is that um, they may be great signs, but as far as the impact is concerned uh, in regards to the approach of the hour of judgment, um, it's considered minor in that aspect. What does that mean? That when, for example, the jal arises, he comes, or his eyes of some is descends, that's when you know for sure that the Qiyamah is coming. Right? So people's Iman will, will, will already be on that level that we have to rectify ourselves. Likewise, when, for example, the sun rises from the west, that's the close of the door of Tawbah. So these are minor signs where they may occur and they may not so, be so clear in terms of the approach of Qiyamah and the end of time. So they're considered Sabira or Sughra in that sense. Secondly, one thing you may already heard is that uh, these signs may, may occur in one era or one time, and they will increase or intensify as time progresses. So, uh, for example, when you have some of the tabi'in who uh, narrate incidents of uh, the Day of Judgment and some of the signs, they would say that we have seen this in our times. And that's fine, those signs occurred at that time, but as time will progress, and later centuries, even in our time, we'll see those same signs are, are persisting, they're continuing, and at times they will also increase and intensify. Okay, so uh, both of them are, they would still be considered minor signs. The first sign we're going to discuss in Shalat Ta'ala um, is uh, what we call futile competition. And as the ahadith state, is that in the lengthy hadith of Jibreel salam, when Rasulullah was approached by Jibreel in the form of a human being, and he asked several questions, very, very important questions. And the hadith itself is of great importance and it tells us a lot of our deen. One of the last questions he asked Sayyidina Rasulullah is أخبرني عن الساعة inform me and tell me of the hour and Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam clearly said at that time that مَنْ مَسْؤُولُ عَنْهَا بِأَعْدَامِ مِنَ السَّائِلِ that the person who is being questioned myself I do not know more than you know the questioner so the, the one being questioned has no better knowledge than the questioner himself but he said that فَأَخْبِرْنِي عَمَارَاتِهَا Sayyidina Jibli says that then tell me if you can't tell me of the exact time and location the exact time of the sa'a then tell me of some of the signs there may be certain signs of the Day of Judgment. And then Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Antanadil Amat Rabbataha, and he said, Wa antaral fufat al urat, ri'a al shai, yatafawaluna fi bunyan. And this is the first time we're going to discuss, inshallah, where he said that you will see that people, fufat, um, fufat means people without sufficient uh, footwear. Very poor people. They don't have footwear. Uh, um, What's the word? They are poorly clothed. They don't have sufficient clothing. Again, a sign of their poverty. They will be shepherds. So you see these people, they're very, very poor, and as a, their, their, uh, their livelihood is with their animals and their herds. You will see them competing. They will compete with one another in putting up buildings and structures. So, they will compete and vie with one another in putting up in tall structures, the hadith says. Yatatawal is a word which says that, for example, if you have people standing in a line and, and people are trying to look taller than the other person beside them, they will tippy-toe, stand on their toes to look taller. This is tatawal. And what this shows is this competition. One trying to look taller than the other person. And this is exactly what we, we've seen in the era after Rasulullah when much of uh, the futuhat and the, the conquest took place and a lot of wealth came into the ummah, then people who were, who were very, very poor with nothing the night before ended up with so much wealth because of the ghanima and the disposable were, were, were distributed and the wealth had flown uh, uh, into the ummah. So 
people began to, they had no other way of spending the money, and they began to uh, construct tall structures and buildings. Not just general buildings, even their houses were, were, were built several floors. And Rasulullah in, in his time, because Rasulullah when the, his objective primarily was to uh, teach the Sahaba and the Muslims the evil of this world, so that they do not become too engrossed and attached to the world so they can focus on the Akhirah. And whenever Rasulullah sensed anything that the Sahaba were being, becoming too attached to dunya, right away he would address them. One of the narrations is Abdullah bin Umar, I believe, says that uh, we had a house and one of the walls was decaying and it was falling apart. And he says that we were fixing it and, and, and patching it and renovating the house. And Rasulullah passed by there and he said that, Al-Amru Asa'u Min He said that the sa'ah, that the hour is, is swifter and quicker than this. Basically, that instead of preoccupying yourself with the, the renovation and, and, and fixing of the homes, you should focus on the akhirah. And notice that Rasulullah if your wall is breaking, this is a necessity. It's, it's a safety hazard. Rasulullah still turned their, their attention towards the akhirah. So, there's also another narration where Rasulullah was passing through Medina, one of his, uh, one of his when, when he would walk around the city and the streets looking for situations and to help people and to address uh, and teach the deen, uh, he seen a house which was built taller than the other houses. And he was shocked. And he, he, he said words which, which uh, alluded to his disapproval of that. And later when one of the Sahaba were with him in that, in that group, informed the house owner and the builder that Rasulullah he didn't like your house too much. What did he do? He demolished his house. So Rasulullah again, he, he understood that building these type of structures was a sign of attachment to the dunya and Rasulullah uh, censored that very much and discouraged the Sahaba from doing that. But naturally, as time passed, people began to compete in these type of things. And if we look around today, in, in, in Canada, United States, especially in the Arab world now, we see that this is happening very, very precisely. That you see people who were very poor, and they were literally shepherds one generation ago, or they may still be shepherds, but they are now competing and vying with one another and building these type of structures. Okay, so the, the title was very rightfully uh, named that from the CN Tower to the Burj. And here we have a little image. I don't know how, you can, how clear it is, but alhamdulillah. Um, we see that a lot of these structures are coming up. And is, anything, is there anything wrong with building a tall structure? The question is. Because generally the signs of the hour um, are considered negative to, to a certain degree. Except very few things, like the coming of Mahdi, uh, the, the, the descent of Isa, these type of things are a good sign. But most of the time, Rasulullah referred to the negative things and how they have a negative impact on the Ummah. So is this type of building and structures, are they considered um, negative and is, there, is it haram? If you have wealth, is, are you allowed to build like this? Remember that Islam is a very, very practical religion. And as long as there's a need for this type of structure or building, then there's nothing wrong with it. Absolutely okay. But the moment when it's done out of, as the hadith says, for competition, so you have no purpose and no objective of building except to compete and to be the best or, or, or have the tallest structure. And many nations boast of this, that we have, when, when, when a lot of visitors come, I understand a lot of you from the States as well, that when you come to Toronto, a lot of the Canadians say, we have the CN Tower. And we use this to boast. But the CN Tower, in some way, justify that it's actually a, a, a tower for the radio stations and, and, and signals. So it's somewhat justifiable, but other buildings in other, other countries, we don't want to take names, but they have vast amounts of space. Acres and acres and many, many miles of open land. And when you have so much space, there is no practical reason for you to be building up into the heavens. Right? And that shows waste and, 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 and extravagance. And if we look into history of the first person or the early people who build these type of structures and tall towers, who do you find? You would find people like Pharaoh. The pharaohs. The pyramids are a sign of that. And if you look at the pyramid, for example, it's the shortest. It's a dwarf compared to the other, other structures. Right? 
Secondly, Fir'aun of Musa the pharaoh at that time, he specifically said, he told his chief engineer or architect, you might call him, Fir'aun had his architects and his people, he asked them to build a tower. There was no reason for it. What did he say? That Musa claims, he claims, that there's a God in the heavens. Haman, I want you to build me a tower so I can go look at him, see where he is. I want to reach the clouds and see where this Allah is standing. So again, evil within it. Again, the people of Ad were great people, the great nation. Allah had given them many, many abilities. And what is and Surah Shu'ara, what does it say about them? Sayyidina Hud told them, أَتَبْنُونَ بِكُلِّ رِيعٍ آيَةٍ تَعْبَدُونَ وَتَتَّخِذُونَ مَصَانِعَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَخْلُدُونَ That do you build these magnificent and tall structures at good vantage points, these locations, just for fun? تَبْعَثُونَ تَعْبَثُونَ There's no reason for it. You have homes, huge, lavish homes, but you build these structures and monuments just for what? Just for fun and games. This is where the evil is. None of these structures, or most of them, or maybe some of them, they are just made for fun and games, literally. Competition. And this continues to go. We have the Burj in Dubai, which is so tall and so high. And then you have other rumors that even now, another Muslim country is trying to build a taller and larger structure than that. What's the point here? And the Hadith, although this is happening throughout the world, in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, as well as the non-Arab world, the non-Muslim world, but the Hadith of Tabarani, specifies and, and predicts and pinpoints that this is not referring to any other nation. The Sahaba asked, Ya Rasulullah, who are the shepherds and who are these poor people who will be competing in this manner? And he said, is it, are they the Arabs? Ya Rasulullah said, then who? Referring specifically to the Arabs. So, this is what the Hadith uh, predicts very, very precisely. Again, one of the, I'm sure you must have already heard this as well, that these, these, these signs of the hour are something we don't just look at and, and, and just are impressed by it. That subhanAllah is so precise or this is so amazing. And a lot of times we study these, um, these subjects and these type of um, hadith so we can just, you know, wow, you know, that's so cool. Um, what we should really derive from this is that, number one, the day of judgment is near. And by knowing that, you would prepare and act accordingly. Secondly, is you can see the, the truthfulness of the, of the, the message of Rasulullah and his, his miraculous ability in, in predicting future events. This is what it's all about. That, well, this man was a prophet. Even disbelievers would become Muslim because they see the accuracy of these predictions. So, that's the first thing. That, that you will see people who are uh, without footwear, who are around and naked actually. And these people you could see, if you look into the history, you would find them that they were poorly clothed and at times in the, in, in, in the, in the nude. That they were shepherds. That they would compete with one another in something so futile as building tall structures. And this can apply to anything, even in our day-to-day -day, uh, lives, that we have people who Allah has blessed them with lots of wealth. And they do the same type of competition in building houses. You have a person who's been blessed with, with lots of money and they would put up a house for $2.5 million. And then another wealthy person in the community would say that, I have more money, let's build a bigger house. And this is happening in North America, in places where Allah has blessed the Muslims. So, the point is that although the hadith says that it's futile building of tall structures, you can take away from this that any type of futile, any type of competition which is not for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or for any type of worldly or, or your, your ukhrawi or your hereafter benefit, then that should be shunned and avoided. And that's what we've become, this, this, this hadith again alludes to that we, the ummah will become superficial, that we begin to focus too much on the outward. Everyone today, some, to one degree or another, we're so impressed by the outward, that how we look, what kind of car we drive, what kind of house we live in, the, the lifestyle we live. And Rasulullah Islam did not come to, to, to teach us this. Rather, he says in a very well-known hadith, inshallah, we'll move on to the next sign, is, Allah does not look and judge you based on your outward appearance and the amount of wealth you have. 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rather looks at your hearts. Allah is not, He sees right through you. He knows why we're doing things. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at your hearts and He looks at the quality of your deeds. So this is the first sign, inshallah. We can move on to the next one, inshallah ta'ala. The next sign is the authority of the incompetent. And one thing to note here is that a healthy society is rooted in the healthy and upright and, and appropriate leaders. If the leaders are, are religious, if the leaders are learned in Islam and the Sunnah, if the leaders are, have good conduct and good morals, then this will inevitably affect the people on the subject. Okay? And the moment, and Rasulullah predicted this, that's why if you look into the hadith, and whenever Rasulullah appointed an individual uh, as a governor or as a, as a, as a uh, leader in some expedition, whether it's in battle or at some other new town where the people had become Muslims, Rasulullah always chose the best of the Sahaba. He always chose the Sahaba who knew most Quran. He always chose the Sahaba with the best, best morals. And you look into the Ahadi, Rasulullah said, Mu'adh bin Jabal to Yemen, Abu Musa al-Ashr said Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah to Bahrain to collect the zakah. Any type of post or authority Rasulullah would delegate to others, he always chose the best and the most upright of the Sahaba and most befitting to that, those tasks. And we see that because of the Umarah and the leaders at that time were Sahaba and they were, they were men of Allah, it affected, deeply affected their subjects. But the moment that, that changed and the leaders became incompetent people, the leaders became ignorant. And we don't mean ignorant in the terms of dunya, that they, they don't have a degree. We mean ignorant. They could, be, they could have the, the, the most high-tech and most uh, advanced degree in whatever field. But when the Umarah and the leaders and the authority have no knowledge and ilm regarding the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the book of Allah and the sunnah of Rasulullah that's when we're in trouble. And never mind the non-Muslim societies today, if you look at the Muslim communities, much of, of, of the evil that, and, and corruption that's, that's there is because of this one reason. But our leaders are, are, are incompetent in that sense. And obviously when the leaders are this, at this degree, then it will most definitely affect the subjects. So what happens when, when you have leaders of, this, of, of such a description where they're incompetent and ignorant regarding the will of Allah and regarding the teaching of Rasulullah and the Quran, this will have very adverse effects on the community and the people. Some of the effects, number one, as other hadith will also highlight, that falsehood and lies will become prevalent. When the leaders are no good, then to be honest and be polite and upright has no value to the people. As a result, falsehood and lies will become prevalent. And related to that, those who are truthful in society will be considered liars and deceitful. And those who are liars and evil people in society will be considered righteous and noble. So you can see when, when, when it's a chain effect. Once the, uh, the leaders are, are corrupted, then it has these type of effects and everything is reversed now. The values are reversed. On the same token, the scholars and knowledgeable will be considered ignorant and vice versa. When everyone's values are upside down, then there is no value for ilm. There is no value for sunnah. There is no value for the Qur'an. And as a result, you have people saying that whenever someone is studying deen or you have a scholar of very high caliber, the people, the, the lay people will label them, oh, he's a munna. He is a, you know, shaykh, imam. What does he know? So the people who have true knowledge, who are very, very, who enjoy a very high status in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they would be considered ignoble. They will be considered the low of society. Likewise, those who are ignorant in regards to the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sunnah, they will be considered very honorable. And this person is very, very amazing. And then obviously these people will be, people will be teaching the deen to a certain degree and they will, they will destroy the teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the hadith and Imam Shabi, a great muhaddith and a scholar of the early century says, the hour will not arrive until knowledge becomes ignorance. 
until knowledge becomes ignorance. This is his saying, and he derived it from the hadith, that true knowledge will be considered ignorance. Whenever you have a child who's studying the Quran or becoming, or studying the Sunnah and the Sharia, people say, what is this useless stuff you're studying? And they may not, they may not say it, but they, they, their actions speak louder than their words. Likewise, he's continuing saying that I will not arrive until knowledge becomes ignorance and ignorance becomes knowledge. That people, you will find people who have an amazing degree, they have a PhD or something, or several PhDs, and they'll have not an ounce of iota of knowledge of, of deen, and they'll be considered very knowledgeable. And we see this today. And again, we may see some of these signs today. The generations before us saw them, definitely. And as we continue to go through this time, this will intensify. It will take new change in forms. So again, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the evil, for protection from the evil of these times, um, as they will get worse, as Rasulullah says in the hadith, that, that never will, there will never come a time upon people except that the era or century after that will be worse than the one before it. So, um, as long as, alhamdulillah, if we look around today, there is this, this ignorance that's widespread. But alhamdulillah, we do have scholars, we do have true deen and ilm. And as long as we have ilm and people like this who are, who are very enthusiastic and eager to study the deen, then inshallah, this is the form of security and guarantee that, that this evil time has not really come upon us as of yet. Alhamdulillah. In relation to that, the third sign we're going to discuss today is the prevalence of ignorance, as well as the loss of knowledge. So this is again related to that same thing. You can see how it's affected by that. When uh, um, knowledge is lost and ignorance takes its place, then it will, it will affect leaders and society as we just discussed. Um, in regards to um, knowledge, many, many ahadith, we don't have time to go into that, but he himself encouraged studying the deen and ilm very much. The Quran highlights it. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Rasulullah and Surah Taha to say, the Prophet of Allah, who is getting this direct knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is asked, and imagine the Prophet's knowledge, despite that great amount of knowledge he possessed, that wealth knowledge he possessed, the Prophet is commanded by Allah to say, Oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Give me more knowledge. So this, this is an amazing sign for us that no matter how much knowledge we have, we should continue to seek and acquire knowledge. And a, a, a well-known incident of Abdullah ibn Mubarak radiallahu anh, who was a great muhaddith, he's one of the um, senior muhaddithin um, before Imam Bukhari and them. Um, once in his, in his gathering, once he grown very old and not retired, but he was getting sick in, at that elderly age. And there was a scholar from another city or town who was visiting, I think Kufa or Baghdad, and he had his halaqah and his gathering in the masjid, and people would come from very far off lands to learn from him. So Abdullah Mubarak, who was a senior scholar of that city, he begins to grab his, his, his learning utensils, it's his pen, it's his paper, whatever he had, and he began to set off towards the masjid. One of his students see him on the way and said, that, Ya Abdullah, Ya Imam, where are you going? So you're our Imam, where are you going with all these papers and notebooks? Do you have a class? He said, no, I'm going to go attend the halaqah of this scholar. <laughs> this scholar may have been younger than him. So he asked, where are you going? He said, I'm going to, to learn. And he said, very well-known words, he said, that perhaps I may hear one word, just one word, which may prove to be beneficial for me. So the, the acquisition of knowledge is something which is highly, highly recommended and encouraged throughout the hadith and throughout the Quran. And likewise, Rasulullah censored and he, he spoke of the evil of ignorance. And at the time of Rasulullah when certain incidents took place which were very unfortunate events and he was informed of what had happened. He said that, for example, there was this hobby who had passed away because he had a wound in his head and he had to take a bath. And one, the, the, his traveling companion said that, you know, you have to take a bath and you have a wound, but, you know, Rasulullah taught us that you have to take a bath. So he went and took a shower and because of the water going into his wound, he got infected and he passed away. When Rasulullah was informed of that, he said, he said, قَتَلُوهُ قَتَلَهُمُ اللَّهُ He said, they killed him, may Allah destroy them. He was very angry. And he said, Why didn't they ask someone if they didn't know? The cure for ignorance is questioning. So Rasulullah said, you can see that he, 
His deen of ilm, the Prophet himself was sent as a teacher. And the opposite of that ilm was really, really, really disliked by the Prophet So the third sign we're discussing now is the prevalence of ignorance and the loss of knowledge. And alhamdulillah, like I said before, that we have people who are learning the deen and teaching the deen, and this seems that this type of sign where ilm will be lost is very far away, inshallah. But we do see again that people, they will know lots of things about computers and cars and other types of technology. But when you ask the person, that, when would you do sujood sahu? What is sujood sahu? Or if someone says this type of word to his wife, will that affect the talaq or not, or divorce or not? And if so, what kind of divorce? How many types of divorce are there? When buying and selling, what type of transactions? If you're dealing with these type of sales and you're, you're, you're a businessman, what type of sales and, 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 and contracts would, would invalidate that, that type of deal? So we know a lot of things, but when it comes to the deen, we don't know too much. But alhamdulillah, as I said, that there are people who are learning and teaching this actively, and it seems that this sign is very far away, inshallah, when you will have true loss of knowledge. And inshallah, when we look at the, one of the last signs, I'll discuss this some more. So that is prevalence of ignorance and the loss of knowledge. Hopefully that, that image um, does justice to that. Um, the next one, inshallah, is actually missing here, but it's number four, which is severing the ties of kinship. You want to write that down? Number four would be this, severing the ties of kinship. I'll just go back so you don't get mixed up. Rasulullah warned that before the Day of Judgment, there will be a prevalence of severance of ties, of kinship. And again, this happened throughout, throughout time. In different eras, we always have this problem, especially now, nowadays, that there is not a single family you would find in which there is, this problem is not occurring, where brothers and sisters, uncles and, and nephews, aunts and nieces, or these relationships are not being destroyed and broken. So, Latiyat al-Rahim, Rasulullah foretold that Tadhab, the, 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 the severance of ties, this will become prevalent. And Zuhur is a type of word which means it becomes apparent, where you can clearly see it. And when you say Zahab, it means that it's, it's, it's visible now. Another meaning of Zahara is to become victorious. And when you're victorious, it's, it's predominant and you're dominant. So you will see that the trend is to, to disassociate yourself from your families. And we see this a lot of times where people are, for example, in, in a business venture or enterprise, and then they see the potential of their abilities and, 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 and their, their business skills, and they feel that because a lot of times these businesses are family businesses, and you see that if I keep this up with the family, they're holding me down. And this becomes a means for them to sever the ties of kinship. That I must get ahead it doesn't matter what Rasulullah stressed, mending and joining the ties, if it means that they're going to hinder me, that I have nothing to do with them. And a lot of the ties that are being severed are because of these type of things. So, once again, this is a type of sign where it will continue to, be, to occur and it will also intensify. So, we seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the evil because this is a major sin. Qatit al-Rahim is a major sin. One of the early things Rasulullah taught along with Salah and Zakah was Wasilul Join and mend the ties. So this again is also a sign which has occurred and will continue to occur inshallah ta'ala and we see uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's protection from the evil of this. The next one, number five, is Katwatul Zalazil. The frequency of earthquakes. And if anyone will study, never mind study, if you just listen to the news, um, you would see that this is taking place in our time. And we have a little chart here, which has been updated to 2008, I believe, that is. And you see the, the jump in, in the frequency of earthquakes. And this is in our time. In fact, Habib ibn Hajar, a very well-known muhaddith and a commentator of Sahih Bukhari, he says, in his time, this was, this was hundreds of years ago, he says that this sign has occurred in our time. He says that there have been many, many earthquakes to the north, to the east, and the western regions. And you can imagine that if in, if in 1900s, that was a frequency of earthquakes, imagine how less it might have been at his time. But 
Abu Lahaj is a great scholar like this, and many other scholars are saying the same thing, that at their time, they had noticed the increase of earthquakes and their frequency. And if you look at our times now, this is just off the charts. It's unbelievable. There was a time when you were growing up, or we were growing up, where the earthquake was a rare occurrence, perhaps. Like, oh, there's an earthquake in the sense of that we have to protect all of them. But now it's like every single day, every, every week, literally there are earthquakes every single day. Maybe they're very minor and they go, they go unnoticed, but this is happening every single day. The earthquakes are happening. And if you count the major earthquakes, let's say above 7.0, there's so many of those. And again, those were very rare earthquakes. And this is showing that, for example, when you have, if you take an egg, okay, and you boil it, okay, or the egg is hatching, let's say, and as time comes for the egg to hatch and, and the baby to come out, the egg begins to shift and shake, and you have cracks appearing on the surface, and then the, the, bird, the bird comes out. Okay? Or you're boiling it, and it's ready to boil, and it's overboiled, and it starts to hatch and crack. Okay? This is the same example of the dunya. The dunya has an expiry date, an end time. And as that time approaches, you will see that if you look at some of these the images of the earthquake frequency, I don't think I will be able to upload it, but you will see literally, if you look at the fault lines, of the earth, you will see that it's really cracking, really about to fall apart. And this is indicative that the time, the hour of judgment is appearing and is occurring. And, and we know that when that happens, the dunya, this earth will be destroyed. And this is a sign of that. And you see the cracks appearing. And literally, I want you to go home, inshallah, and try to Google an image of the frequency of earthquakes or fault lines. And you will literally see that the dunya is in pieces now. Like, you know, and, and this shows you that that is occurring. And again, this will continue to occur because some of the, just as a form of good news and glad tidings, that some of the scientists and seismologists, they say that they're asked commonly questions like, are earthquakes really on the rise? Are they really frequent now? And they would say, their answer is no, not really. The reason for that is because the earthquakes are occurring at the same rate they used to. But because now we have more stations to monitor them, more tools of monitoring, it seems that they're occurring more frequently, but this was always happening. They continue to happen in very remote areas, places where we don't know that an earthquake happened because no one lives there. So, uh, just as a, as, a, as a note of good time, glad timings and, 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 and bushra, that we feel that this is the time, but inshallah, this is not that time. And this time where Rasulullah really referred to Qatatul Zalazal and intensification of this will still occur in, in, in far times, inshallah. As far as earthquakes, it seems to us that it's always a form of punishment. But the beautiful thing of the gift of the Iman and being a mu'min and a believer is that nothing can ever happen to you in this dunya except that there are two ways you can look at it. And for a true believer, any type of event that he goes through and has to live through will always be a form of goodness and closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does that mean? This is summed up in a very well-known hadith where Rasulullah said, عَجَبًا لِأَمْرِ الْمُؤْمِنِ إِنَّ أَمْرَهُ كُلَّهُ لَهُ خَيْرٌ Wonderful, very amazing is the affair and the state of a believer, male or female. Everything he undergoes or she undergoes is khair, is goodness for them. How is that? You got into an accident. It's, it's devastating. It's, it's costing you a fortune. You lost this much in business. How is that khair for you? Prophet further says, In asabatu sarra'u shakara fatana If affluence and good times comes upon this person, this person is thankful, shukr, alhamdulillah, is from Allah. This, this thing that took place of goodness is truly a form of goodness that they had more wealth and they're thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So being thankful of a ni'mah or of a bounty of Allah is a good thing. On the opposite side, if a misfortune befalls the person, there's a death in the family or an accident or something like that. Sabara, this person is patient. So likewise, this situation is also khair for the person. So for a believer, when you have earthquakes and massive death toll and accidents like this, it may seem to be negative and Allah is punishing us. But there's always a good side and a positive side to look at it. That, as the hadith says, that inna ummati hadihi ummatun marhuma. That my ummah is a marhuma ummah. It's a recipient of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala constantly. And he said that 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send them and test them through earthquakes and these type of misfortunes and, and, and catastrophes. And this will be their early punishment for their misdeeds in the dunya. So that in the akhirah, they can enjoy Jannah. So this is again, Rasulullah is telling us that you will go through these events and you will have to witness these disasters and you will, there will be loss of life and wealth. But at that time, we should know that this is a form of rahmah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we make mistakes and those mistakes are being paid for and are being cleansed in the dunya rather than this occurring in the akhirah. And whereas for the disbelievers and, and, and those who are for evil, then this definitely is an early form of punishment for them. So that is sign number five, which is Kathatul Zalazil. And if you look at the chart once again, you will see that, that is, uh, that's um, um, occurring at this time. And inshallah, we hope that it's not that time right now. But like many other signs, they will intensify and will continue to reoccur over and over again and to a, to a, to a much higher degree. The sixth sign. And I believe you want to cover ten signs? With seven signs. And I'm going to probably get around to eleven signs. Um, there are many more. Some of the scholars have listed fifty major, minor signs, sorry. But I'm going to have listed from fifty minor signs to over 120, 130 minor signs. So what we're, we're just presenting to you just, just a small portion of that, a glimpse of that. Some of those that we may be uh, impacted by. If you look into the books of a hadith, you'll find many, many other signs. And inshallah, if we have some time at the end of this, we'll just go through a quick list of some of the signs. Maybe we'll be your effort to some of those signs, inshallah. Number six is Zakhrafatul Masajid. That before the end of times, the ornamentation and decorations of the masjid will take place. And this is a sign of the day of judgment. The masjid, the masajid are the houses of Allah. And as the Quran describes the masajid, masajid and the masajid are places where the name of Allah is uttered and mentioned abundantly. So the initial masjid, why it's there is for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and to come close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you look at the description of the masjid Nabawi, one of the early masajid in Islam, very, very simple. And Rasulullah said that there will come a time when my ummah will become so preoccupied with the outward appearance of the masjid that they will forget what's important. That's what he said. That Anas relates the hour will not occur until people begin to vie with one another in regards to the masajid. And unfortunately, we see this today. And mind you, the tabi'een, the early scholars, they had also identified that. In their times, 1200 years ago, 1300 years ago. And they said the same thing, that when wealth came into the ummah, and the people started to become materialistic and superficial, and this is what happened, this was one of the consequences of that. That they built magnificent masajid, huge structures, big domes and several minarets fancy wall and, and engravings and, this, and, and, and decoration in the masjid, but you would find very few people praying. And if you compare that to what we have today, every masjid, whether it's in the GTA or other places throughout the world, this is happening. And whether it's negative or positive, we're going to get into it in, in a second, inshallah. But let's just take a, take a moment to look at how this is happening in our time. Many masajids are being built for several million dollars. And a lot of that, a, a large portion of that money, you can say is for the dome, for the minarets. You know, one masjid builds one with one minaret, then there's another masjid, no, we can build two of them. And this costs money. And again, this shows you that our, our view and our, our values are different. They've been turned around. Why not spend that money to have no domes, have no minarets? Did the Prophet mission have a dome or minaret? No, we, we have begun to associate a dome and a minaret to Islam. The crescent was not a sign of subset, a sign of Islam. A dome on, on top of a masjid and the minaret is not a sign of Iman or Islam. But we've become so fixated on the domes and the minarets that if you build a masjid and there's no dome, this is a masjid. Imagine 
that we would save that money. And you can have a beautiful structure, large enough to, to, for the capacity of the Muslim community. You can build a gymnasium, things that are needed for the youth and the families and children. But imagine we would save that money from a, a dome and several minarets and expensive, expensive chandeliers and spend that and help the next community over build their masjid. How about we, we, we save that money and give it to individuals, poor people who cannot afford sufficient money to buy a home or to build a home. Imagine we use this for that type of stuff. Imagine we invested in a madrasa or a school of the masjid. So again, in itself, there's nothing wrong with building these things. Because Islam is a deen of moderation. And as long as things are done within moderation and, and, and just within limits, it's okay. And this is Allah says in the Quran, وَلَا تُسْرِفُوا Do not be wasteful. And we see that when it comes to building a masjid, we have become very wasteful. And I'm sure that you can all think of better means of using that wealth. Okay, and this 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 cordon uh, or this uh, sign can also be related to the first time we talked about And this is what the hadith says that that people will begin to buy and compete with one another in building a masjid. If there's a masjid, and I'm sure you can relate to this, that if there's a masjid where they're getting their, let's say, their rug and their, their, their floor put in. And they get a good deal of a rug that resembles the rug of another masjid. They'd say, no, 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 we're not the same. This one looks the same. Or we have to get a better one. That, that's such a simple design. We have to get some more fancy. And this is lack of taqwa regarding the wealth of, of sadaqah. That if we, we became more conscious and more aware of how we spent this money. This is not my money or your money. Or the trustees or the treasurer's wealth. This is the money of Allah. So again, to become more conscious of how we go about in, 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 in ornamenting the masajid. Umar radiallahu anh, after Masjid Nabawi had become really weak and needed renovation and some restoration, he told one of the builders, he said that, he said, Akinnan nas, when you build the masjid and rebuild it, make it sufficient that it will shelter them. They need a shelter. You know, rain, heat, cold, something that will protect them from from, from um, the elements. وَلَا تُصَفِّرْ وَلَا تُحَمَّرْ Abstain from using bright colors like yellow or red. What does this do? You come to the masjid and you're so enamored by the colors and, and, and the design and the, and the engravings and decorations of the masjid. So, this is what Umar Adhan told the builder at that time. So once again, in itself, you may have this question that, you know, I have, Allah has given me wealth. I live in a really nice home. Why not have the house of Allah beautiful as my home? That's valid. Yes, you should have a beautiful masjid. Especially if the, the lifestyle of the individual and the community are very, very uh, blessed. Then you should also spend that in the masjid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But again, keep it within moderation. Keep it within limits. Rather than focus on how tall your minaret would be, Rather than focusing on how many domes and chandeliers you have, how about focusing on how many people we can bring to the masjid? Establish an infrastructure for the masjid. Programs, activities. Bring people for the, for the daily salah more and more. So, along with having the basic amenities and, 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 and necessities of a masjid, yes, you may go ahead and spend some more money to beautify the house of Allah. If your house is beautiful. And this, this will only happen when we treat the masjid like our own houses. But the key here, again, is to keep it within moderation. And not to go into the extreme. And this is really this is true extremism. That's right. And that's the next point. When Rasulullah sallallahu encouraged the Sahaba to build smaller masajid in their localities in their neighborhoods. Remember, in Medina there wasn't just one masjid; there were several masajid. Amar He commanded that the masajid be built in the in the in, in, in the mahallat, in, in the neighborhoods, as well as in each house, where you would have a specific area you pray. What did he say? Wa amara bi wa wa Oh, the words are similar to that. 
And Rasulullah commanded that the masjid be kept clean. And he commanded that they be, they, they be they have a, a, a pleasant scent in the masjid. Keep the masjid well scented and, and, and clean and presentable. So again, you have to strike the balance. And this is what this deen is all about. But at the same time, while keeping the masjid clean and presentable, and a comfortable place where you feel like worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, avoid extravagance. One of the fuqaha have stated that when building a masjid, it is makruh to have calligraphy on the wall of qibla. Especially very, very intricate designs and, 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 and things like that. Why? Because when you're praying, how many times have you cast a glance on the wall, wall of qibla and you start reading the ayah? So, this is something you have to keep in mind. You have to keep a balance that it's a nice place to, if you feel like worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's clean, it's presentable, it's beautiful, it has a good scent. At the same time, you do not want to go on the other extreme where that's all what you're worried about instead of the actual salah and the, the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what the masjid was, was, was founded for. The next sign, inshallah, I hear some quick pictures, inshallah, just want to check these. Um, I was able to visit this, that's why I brought the picture here. Uh, but you, you can see that several domes, like I mentioned, I mean, so many domes, you probably can't even count them. Um, and then it is the inside of it. You go inside, you get lost. This is it. Anyone know where this is? Where? Abu Dhabi, yeah. So again, this is an example of, look at that chandelier, it's huge. If you see it, it I mean, it's, subhanAllah. So, the next one, number seven, is really quickly, we're going to wrap this up, inshallah. Time is up. I think the food is already here as well. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm feeding on your, your lunch time, but inshallah, please bear with me um, because this is the last of the minor signs, and after, after lunch break, we're going to go into the major signs. Number seven is sudden death or mawtul fat'a. As the hadith of Tabarani states, that verily one of the signs of the hour is the prevalence of sudden death. And I'm going to just speed up a little bit now. Um, during the time of Rasulullah in the olden days, to die suddenly was really an event that someone just dropped dead. Really? The most sudden death you could have had was in the battle in the jihad. That you get shot by an arrow or a spear. Even that was not so sudden. Because you have many, many hadith and narration where the, the Sahaba or the Tabi'in or the, the Mujahideen are laying there wounded and they're saying la ilaha illallah, saying the shahada. So the most sudden death they could have had in those days was something like that. Normally when people would die, they would feel, the person would feel that I'm getting sick now, health is deteriorating, they would go into, they'd be bedridden, people would come to visit them, they would make their wasiyah and they'd be quitted, this, 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 this is how much wealth I have, this is the property I own, and this goes to such such person. They, they would have time to do all this. And then they would feel that this is the time, and they would lay down, and their family would be around them, they'd be saying dhikr, reading the Quran, and making shahada, so that they can have a person khitam and a good ending. But nowadays, if you look at, I, I wanted to present a chart, but I couldn't find a, something that was really clear, uh, and com uh, not complicated, but nowadays, how often did you hear that so-and-so was very healthy, and he just passed away a heart attack? How many times? So, this again is um, a sign of the judgment, where people can just die of cardiac arrest, heart attack, an accident, bomb blast, and this was something that was unheard of in those days. Number eight is a quick passage of time. I'm just going to just list this for them. Uh, number eight is a quick passage of time when time will fly, literally like we say nowadays. And this has several interpretations. One is that one is that it refers to lack of barakah. You have so much time, but you can't really get, seem to get anything done that time. Okay? Um, number two is that it's, it refers to the people of one era that they become very close, which means that the, the distance between travel between communities and localities and cities will become very close where people are just next to each other almost. And we see this with, the, with the modern transportation and cell phones and these sort of things which make, it, make people very, very close. Lastly is that we would leave it to the actual literal meaning of the hadith where Rasulullah says that time will be compressed and suppressed and it will be really, really, it will speed up. Okay, and there may be a scientific interpretation for that. We want to avoid that, inshallah. But the point is that uh, the, 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 one of the preferred opinions is to leave the hadith on this literal meaning that time will speed up. Okay, so how that will happen, Allahu alam. But that is also a sign of the judgment. Number nine is um, the abandonment of Hajj. Okay, and this took place in earlier times where Hajj was not abandoned entirely, but because of the time, for example, of the Mongolian invasion, the Tatars, that um, there was so much fear on, on, on the roads and the pathways to Hajj that very, very few people were able to do Hajj. 
So Hajj was, to a certain degree, discontinued. Okay? But it still, it still went on. What this hadith refers to is towards the end of time. This is when, after Istihar al-Kaaba, the Kaaba will be destroyed. And it will be not regarded as sacred anymore. At that time, when the Kaaba will be destroyed, there will be much, much corruption and, and evil around the world. And that will cause, and obviously the Muslims will not be existing anymore. And therefore, at that time, Hajj will be closed forever. So that is a sign of the judgment that Hajj of the Baytullah will be seized. And number 10 is the disappearance of the Qur'an. And this is again in relation to the sign of knowledge where uh, along with the disappearance of knowledge, the Qur'an, there will become a time when the Qur'an will literally disappear. As the hadith says, that they will open the Qur'an and Yusra Qur'an. That in one night, the entire Qur'an will be uplifted. You will open your manuscript next morning and there will be nothing there. You will be half it the next morning when you wake up, you try to recite Qur'an, it's not there anymore. And this is way at the end of time. This is right before the destruction, inshallah, and uh, the, the blowing of the trumpet. And lastly, number 11, is the disestablishment of inheritance. That after a person dies, we know it's, that it's, it's, it's necessary that the wealth be distributed according to the rules of Sunnah and of the, of the Quran. And there will come a time when that inheritance will not be distributed. And one of the reasons for that is because one of the earliest knowledges of divine knowledge which will be uplifted, uplifted from the dunya will be the knowledge of inheritance and how to distribute that. So when the knowledge is no longer there, then it will, it, it will stop the wealth being distributed as well as other, other possibilities and other interpretations which are present. But the point is that the last time we're going to discuss tonight, this afternoon actually is, the disestablishment of inheritance. And when this happens, these are all signs, minor signs, and there will be major signs which will also occur uh, in between and after these, inshallah. May Allah give us the ability to uh, really reflect upon these signs and uh, never become a, a statistic of these signs that we really act out a sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where Rasulullah has foretold. Likewise, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us from the evil of these times and there will be very, very challenging and trying times. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us from the evil of that time and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a great man and when time comes to death that we are able to utter the ikram al-la'in of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله واستغفره السلام عليكم ورحمة الله